Welcome to the next message from Encounter Church. For more information about our church, visit us online at EncounterPGH.com. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the message. Jared. I'm the lead pastor here at Encounter Church, and it's just wonderful seeing all of your faces. Thanks again for braving the uh, the cool weather as well as the uh, blockages of uh, the streets all over the city because of the marathon this morning. So you guys are the true faithful ones, and I love to see it. Um, if you're listening today on our podcast because you weren't able to make it to church, we're just glad that you're making that as well. Uh, today we are beginning uh, a returning series. This is something we've done for a few years now, and I love this series. It's called Heroes and Villains. Uh, it started off as just heroes, and then we added villains a couple uh, years ago. And this is really us exploring some individual character stories that we find throughout Scripture that maybe you might be familiar or maybe not even familiar with at all. Um, I remember growing up in church and uh, on Sunday, who, who remembers Sunday school, like going to Sunday school in church? It's not something that really happens so much anymore or not a lot of churches do them. Some do. Um, and so this is kind of an, an idea of, you know, I've found as a pastor that a lot of people, um, they read their Bibles, but a lot of times they'll focus on the New Testament. And so there's a lot of stories or, um, from the Bible that people really have no idea about. And there's incredible lessons to be found in Scripture for us found all throughout the Bible, and so we wanted to take an opportunity to explore some of those characters in the Bible, some heroes of the faith, and also some villains of the faith, and find out what their story can say to our stories, because that's really what the whole Bible is all about. A lot of people say things to me like, like the Bible doesn't feel relevant, or the Bible doesn't feel like it speaks to us today, and I believe that that it couldn't be further from the truth. I believe that the Bible is the story of humanity And it is a story of how we as people relate to God and how God relates to us. And so we can see ourselves in the stories of those people throughout Scripture. And so this month, we're going to be tackling four different stories uh, and some really interesting characters, really interesting individuals that I'm excited about. Today, we're beginning our series with the serpent from the uh, book of Genesis and from chapter 3 with uh, the Adam and Eve story. Next week for Mother's Day, my wife Heather is going to be teaching out of the story of Hannah in, uh, I believe it is the book of Samuel. And then uh, week three, we'll be tackling the story of Jonah. And many of you are familiar with the story of Jonah and the whale, right? How many of you have ever heard of Jonah and the whale? Now, I promise you that this story is going to be a different take on it than you have heard before. So I'm excited about that. And then we're following up with a guy named Mordecai. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of Mordecai. Wow, more people than I thought. So Mordecai was the cousin of Queen Esther, and most people just kind of gloss over him because Esther is the focal point of the story. But we're going to be talking about Mordecai and uh, some really great lessons for that the last week of the month. But today, we are beginning our exploration of some of these characters by learning about the serpent, the serpent that we find in the book of Genesis. Now, the interesting thing about the serpent is this is a character that we don't really don't talk about much, right? Because when we think of the story, of Genesis, and we think about uh, the beginning and the creation story and humanity, this idea of Adam and Eve, who do we focus on in that concept? We focus on Adam and Eve, and then the supporting character that also gets a lot of attention is the apple, right, or the, the fruit that comes from that story. But what about the main antagonist? The main antagonist of the story is the serpent. What do we really know about the serpent in the story? 
Who is this serpent and what was his purpose and why did he just kind of walk into the scene and is there more to learn? And most importantly, what is it that the Bible is trying to tell us about the serpent? Is there more that we can learn? Because the story of Adam and Eve, whether you believe it in a literal sense or a figurative sense, the purpose, the essence of the story of Genesis and the beginning moments of the creation account and ultimately what happens in Genesis 3 that we're going to read about in a moment is really the scene of something that we as humanity have been dealing with ever since. The moment that happens, that almost everybody in this room has probably heard of, the idea of the serpent coming along and deceiving Adam and Eve, and ultimately that is what we call the fall of man, right? This moment in time and in history, the story, the, po- the focus of the story is ultimately the moment where we became individuals who were separated from God, and everything that's happened ever since then is what we have dealt with. So, I don't know that I've ever heard anybody actually kind of dive in maybe from this take today. So I'm really excited about this particular message because I think we're going to learn something. Whether you've been a Christian for most of your life, whether this is new to you, whether you feel like you've heard this particular story a thousand times, I believe that God is going to speak to us today and he's going to challenge us to rethink some aspects of our faith or maybe strengthen them and challenge some of our assumptions on them today. So let's begin our journey in the very first book of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 3, we're going to pick up our story right after the first two chapters describe how God created the universe and ultimately where man and woman came from. And now we're going to pick it up in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. If you have your Bibles, pull them out. It'll also be on the screen here. And we have free Bibles for you out in the lobby at our Connection Center. If you don't have a Bible, please pick one up. Uh, So we're going to begin reading in Genesis 3. If you don't know where Genesis is, literally just open the front cover of your Bible. Go to what says the third chapter, okay? Verse 1. Now, the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, who we know is Eve from the first two chapters, Did God really say that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, this is what God said. He just literally said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. So then the serpent then replies, no, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. So, you know, just we're going to nip this one right in the bud here, okay? Both the men and the women ate, okay? So, all right, we're not not placing blame on any particular uh, gender here, okay? Verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. This This is a small little note, but I want you to understand this. At this time, humanity had such a connected relationship with their creator, okay, the Bible is painting a picture of what the relationship was with was like with God at the time before the fall of man took place. We struggle with this very idea today because how many of us have gone through life where we feel like, God, are you there? 
Where are you? I don't understand. I have a hard time understanding whether you are here. I can't see you. I can't touch you. Like you're, It would be so much easier for me to know that you are real if... I could see your presence. But here's what you need to understand is that that's the problem. This is the very struggle that we deal with because of what the Bible teaches is sin in our life and in the universe. Because it came in, because we now struggle with it, we are separated from birth from God. But that was not the way that it always was. In the beginning, the Bible teaches that in the early days, when we were first on the earth, the relationship with God was one that was was connected just like me or you hanging out. So when it says that Adam had the ability to hear God walking in the garden, we don't know exactly what that is, but there's an indication that at one point in time, it was easy to know God was present and to experience him. And this is why it's so important to understand what was lost in this moment. Now let's pick it up. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? As if God doesn't know where he is, right? And he said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And then God asks him, who told you that you were naked? As if, as in, what does naked mean? Right? Like, you now have been changed. Something has come into your life and you are a different person now And you don't even understand the ramifications of what you just did. Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man replied, well, the woman gave to me to be with me. You gave it to her to me, and she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. And then the woman, God asked the woman, what have you done? What have you done? And he looks at her, and he looks at Adam, and here's the key to all of this story. This is not about a man, and it's not about a woman. Check it out right here. And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate it. The serpent deceived me, and I ate it. This story, this moment is the defining moment in our history that changed everything. God created the universe for us to have communion, to have relationship with him. It was never designed for us to be suffering the way that we do. The world was never meant to be in pain the way that we see it is. Our lives were never meant to be lived in separation from him and struggling and quarreling and all the things that we have all over the world in our own personal lives. It was never meant to be that way. But because of this moment of deception and giving into that moment, from that point on, we as a people, as a race of human beings, have struggled with this very idea. And here's the biggest idea. The story of this this moment is not about Adam and Eve. It's not really even about an apple. It's not even really about the serpent. But let me tell you what the story really is about. If you're taking notes, write this down. The story of of the serpent is a story of lies. The story of a serpent is a story of lies. And the rest of the Bible is all about realizing the lies of the serpent and combating it so that we can get back to God. That is the entire point of the Bible. The entirety of it is that the deceiver comes along and changes the way that we see God, disrupts every idea about who God is, and ultimately we have been suffering the consequences ever since. And the rest of the story is God setting it back in motion so that we can come back to what we saw earlier, where we might be able to walk with God and hear him and experience his presence and know him without a shadow of a doubt that he is there. That's what the entire Bible is about. The story of the serpent is a story of lies. In fact, they're lies that are still being told today. 
and that we are tempted to believe, and that we, everyone in this room, none of us are immune to the temptation of the lies. And we're going to talk about what those lies are like. It's those lies that keep us from God. They create chaos in our lives and in the world around us. But you know, the serpent is not just, is not just in this one small chapter in the Bible. We actually see him reflected in various passages throughout the scripture. He has a lot of different names that we see. For example, he has been called the deceiver. His name is Satan. We call him the devil. Other parts of scripture call him the adversary. There's, he's called a thief. He's called a variety of things. And there are passages all throughout scripture where he or the demonic forces that accompany him are throughout scripture and ultimately spitting lies that deceive the followers of God or deceive humanity and ultimately keep us away from God. Now, if this is you know, your first time and you, you've never heard this kind of a thing before or it sounds a little bit, um, you know, like, doesn't that seem a bit archaic that we're talking about spirits, that we're talking about things that, I don't know, like really demons? Like, come on, that sounds like crazy, like a horror movie. Listen, if you're going to believe in a God that is supernatural, I understand it takes a little bit of, of, a, of a jump in your mind. And I get that, okay? But our faith is not one of our mind. The Bible talks about this religion that we follow, this man Jesus. It's not about what we can understand in our brains. It's under. It's believing. It's choosing faith that God is there, and his book that speaks about who he is and the things in it describe what is what the world is like. And the Bible talks about this deceiver, this adversary, this fallen angel named Satan, and the legion of angels that fell with him, therefore his his confidants, his individuals that we call demons. Now I'm not I'm trying I'm trying to tell you, like Forget what you've seen in the movies, okay? We're not talking about like, you know, Dan Brown's movies or, or books or something that talk about like these kinds of, these elements. Now, we're not that, we're just what the Bible says. So throughout scripture, we see moments where the deceiver or his minions show up to lie. For example, 1 Peter 5.8 talks about what this, this serpent shows up like, okay? First Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says, Be sober-minded and be alert because your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone to devour. So we see, again, reflected this idea of the serpent in Genesis. It wasn't just like a happenstance, oh, hello, like this is a lovely tree, isn't it? Yes, what a great fruit. Like it wasn't like it was an accident, the Bible paints a picture that the serpent, that the devil, is, is seeking out opportunities to destroy you, to pull you away from God who loves you, who's trying to rescue you. We also see in John chapter 10, verse 10, where he describes him as a thief. It says a thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. And then we see again in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it says, in their case, the God of this age. This is interesting because we also see the similar thing in the book of Job. The God of this age. The Bible paints a picture that Satan has been given dominion over the earth. So therefore, he is the God of this age, of this place. The God of this age has what? Blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ 
who is the image of God. The lies of the serpent are still being told today. So what are some of those lies? The first one is this. If you're taking notes, write this down. The biggest lie of all is that God can't be trusted. The biggest lie of all, the one that began in the Garden of Eden, was that God can't be trusted. That's what the entire story is about. You see, it wasn't about eternal life. It wasn't about any of those things. It was about discovering this idea that, that God is not good, that he's trying to keep the wool over your eyes, that he's lying to you, that he's deceiving you, that he, that he wants to keep you down, that there's something he's not telling you, that he can't be trusted. And everything from that moment, every lie, every struggle, all the chaos in our life and the way that we struggle and we scratch against to try to, to find and make sense of our world all stems from this moment where the serpent deceived Adam and Eve ultimately to believe that God is not who he said he was. Every problem that we face stems from a belief about who God is. And with our dissonance in our lives, our fear, our doubt, our frustration, our anger, all of the things that we rail against and we yell at God for all come from the space of what we believe about him. The lie that is still told that God isn't really good. That God's not really in control. That he wants bad things for me. That he's just angry at me. You know, all of those things started in this moment. But if we choose to think that God is good, that he can be trusted, that the way that he reflects himself in scripture and talks to humanity and encourages us to live, then we begin to see that it's a lie, that, we, that, that he can be trusted. When I live my life, when my frustrations come along, when my fears come up, when my financial situations or my school situations or whatever it might be happens in my life, and I choose to believe that God is good, that he can be trusted, now I see my circumstances differently. But do you see what happens when I start to wonder when I start to think that God might not be good, that I start to, I allow that to creep in? Now I begin to think, well, if God's not, maybe he's not as good as I thought he was. Or maybe he's not as reliable as I thought he was. It now begins to shake all the things. I look at my financial situation and I think I better do something because now it's on my shoulders. And that's where the rest of the lies come from. Check this one out. Here's one of the lies that I think because we have eroded our idea of who God is, that we don't trust that he is who he says he is, one of the chief lies that we tell ourselves or that we believe is this, is that we can be our own gods or that we don't need God. In other words, if I can't trust God, well, then I can trust myself, right? This is a common, a common lie that is told all throughout the earth that we are each tempted to believe, that each one of us has the answers in our own minds. Science tells us that, right? And I'm not railing against science because I think science is wonderful. I believe that science is the discovery of God's universe. That's what I believe science is. I think it's excellent. But listen, the problem with, hum with human humanism is that it teaches us that all the answers to the universe are found within ourselves, that we can understand everything. And I just don't believe that's true. And because I believe that God is who he says he is and that the word of God does come true in my life as I follow him, I have found that I don't have the answers, that I cannot understand everything, that when I am at my best, I still fail. 
And so the idea of believing that I don't need anything else other than my own self, that I can be my own God, is a lie that keeps people from his son. It keeps people from Jesus. It keeps people in the bondage of the mind and to think that somehow just more knowledge is going to be able to save you. But at the end of the day, you can be the smartest guy in the room, have done the most research ever, and you put your head on the pillow at night and you still feel a sense of longing or wondering why you exist. It's because we're believing a lie. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, talks about this very idea. It says this, The heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? The idea here being that when we say, I can trust myself, I can make wise decisions, I can be smart, you know, this idea of like, we're not talking on a case-by-case basis. Yes, you know how to like budget your money. You can make a good decision about how to like discipline your kids. But we're talking about the grand scheme of it, the total sum of our decisions and where it takes us in life, you know, as humanity. If you want to look at it, the Bible is just talking about humanity in general. If we leave it up to ourselves, where we are our own gods, making our own decisions, we end up with wars. We end up with famine, right? We end up with all of the struggles that we see with violence violence and murder and anger. We see greed and selfishness. These are the outputs of humanity, right? That's what we see over and over again. And even our best efforts ultimately fail and become corrupted. That's the lie. We can try to be our own gods. We can try to be, say that we don't need God and trust ourselves, but ultimately it leaves us in a failed space. The second lie that we see being told that stems from this idea of trusting who God is and what he has said. If we don't believe in that, we oftentimes say, well, then all roads lead to heaven. That's another lie that is told. So in other words, if, I can, if I'm not going to trust myself, well, maybe then I should trust what other people think or what other people believe. This is extremely common for us today. The serpent is still speaking today. Don't worry. It doesn't really matter. You, know? you, can, you can believe in Jesus, but you can also like, believe in Buddha you can also, you know, it doesn't matter. Like you can, you can go to a mosque. You can have some crystals around your neck and, and you know, and believe in, in sort of like a, an overall spiritual thing. You can believe in animism, all sorts of different things because in the end, all the religions are the same. They all lead to the same place. That's a lie. We've talked about that before. Jesus directly combated that when he said, I am the way. I am the truth. No man can come to the Father except through me. Now, the trick is, is that we don't want to believe that. Why? Because we don't believe that God is who he said he is. You see how it all stems from the garden? The idea that God is trying to keep something, the wool pulled over our eyes. This idea that I can be who I want to be. I'm my own God, so it doesn't really matter. If, if, you know, so like if I look at this Jesus guy, I think he's great, but man, he's got a pretty exclusive claim, and that makes me unpopular. If I said to you or to someone else that like you need to know Jesus, you got to follow him in order to get back to, to the Father, like that's unpopular. People aren't going to want to hear that. But it doesn't make it not true. And if God is who he says he is, and Jesus is his son, declared through scripture that Jesus was the son of God, was with him from the beginning, then it behooves us to believe him as well. And this is the trouble that we live in, is that our world is full of people who are deceived by the serpent's lie that you can do whatever you want, and it doesn't really matter. And ultimately, if you're just a good person, you can get to back to whatever that might be in the sky, and that's not what God has said is true. We can't 
just deceive ourselves and believe that, that I can trust what everybody says. Or I can even trust myself. There has to be a source. Jesus said that there was a narrow road and there was a narrow gate. And only those who find that will get there, get into eternal life in that relationship. It's not that he is intentionally making the gate small or that he's trying to make it a hidden passage. That's not the idea. The point is that he knows reality is that we are human beings who still struggle with the same thing Adam and Eve did in the garden. This idea that we want to have what we want when I want it. And God just knows that unfortunately some people are going to be too stubborn. They're just not going to. No matter how much you tell them, no matter how much you try to show them, you invite them, come walk on the road with me, the people will just make their own decisions. That doesn't mean that it's not true. The third lie that is told all the time is that possessions lead to happiness. This is another lie that we see the serpent telling constantly. We see this in our own society particularly, that it's all about security. It's all about making sure that we have enough, right? The Bible talks about generosity, but in our society, it's really about collecting and acquiring and only giving when we have surplus, right? This idea retirement. It's even about retiring early, being able to have the lifestyle that you want to have. It's about houses. It's about cars. It's about savings accounts. It's about making sure that the things that we have, and it's also about making sure that the things that we have are up to par with other people. It's about making sure that the brands of clothing that we wear are appropriate. It's about making sure that the car that we drive is in line with other people that I work with. I I remember I remember going uh, to, to work at a company called Ronstadt. I was in Green Tree in that area. And I remember my coworker, who was a salesman, telling me that he was getting rid of uh, his Volkswagen Jetta. It was like a nice car, had a turbo engine. It was a really nice ride. And he said, I'm selling it and I'm going to buy an Acura. And I said, why? I said, I think your car is really nice. I mean, just the day before he was driving it and we were going to lunch and he loved it. And he said, because when I go out on the sales calls, you know, people want to see guys driving Audis and BMWs and Acuras instead of Hondas or, you know, Chevys or whatever. And I remember that just stuck with me. And I'm not saying everybody is like this, but I do believe that this is something that is a, that is a current that runs through, that runs through our, our culture. This idea that, that you can be judged by who you are and the value and the worth of who we are is based on what you see, what you have. If I have a $300,000 house and you only have a $100,000 house, that must mean I'm doing better than you, right? That must mean that I'm more important than you. If I'm wearing clothes, a t-shirt that costs $30 and you're only buying the $5 one at Walmart, then you must have more money, which must mean you must have a better job, which must mean that you're more valuable to society than other people. You see how I'm following this? So scripture is pointing out these moments where people believe that, that when I acquire things, and as I gather things, it makes me feel secure and that I can be happy if I just got it. If I could just get the next job. You know, if I could just get the pay raise, if I could just get into this house or buy that car, then I'll be happy. Then I'll, I'll feel better. But Jesus directly combats this. Listen to what he says in Luke chapter 12. He says, and then he told them, watch out and be on guard against greed because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus directly combats this idea of that possessions lead to happiness. What he said was that your life, the value of your life is not held in your possessions. 
It's not held in what you have. In fact, the Bible actually teaches that your value is inherent because you are a child of God made in the image of God. The Bible says that right in Genesis. Before chapter 3 that we read the serpent story, it talks about how God made man and women in the image of God, meaning that we have aspects of him, his goodness, his love, his generosity, his creativity like we did earlier. All of these elements are on display in us. We are valuable not because of what you do, not because of what you have, but because of who you are. And nothing that you could do would make you not be valuable. So when we see these passages of Scripture, just before this, Jesus was talking, look at the birds. You know, he's like, look at the birds, look at the flowers. They're provided for, and they're worth much less than you are as a human being. And yet you're worrying about what you're going to eat, and you're worried about where you're going to live and what your clothing is going to be, and if you're going to have enough money to retire and, and all of these things. And I'm not to say that we shouldn't be thinking about them because we are also called to be good stewards of what God has given us. But they are not to be the end result. They are not the thing. And that's the lie that the serpent has told us, is that the things that we have ultimately are the things that will save us or will provide for us or will be secure for us or will lead to happiness. And Jesus says, no, because those things can be here today and gone tomorrow. How many of you have ever had an unexpected bill? You got a paycheck and then you're like, yeah, I've got some money. And all of a sudden, whoop, it's gone, Right? Or maybe something breaks in your house or, God forbid, you know, uh, you go through repossession or bankruptcy or something. The things that we have are not forever. And Jesus is declaring to us that it is a lie and instead to realize that our value is not found in the things that we possess. We try to say, I can trust what I have and I trust what I can see instead of in God. The, number, the next lie is this, and the final one today. This is one that many people believe. Even if they believe in God, even if they want to believe in Jesus, we oftentimes believe this, is that we are too far gone to be saved. This is another lie that is told all the time, and we struggle to believe. Even those of us who call ourselves Christians, for those of us who know Jesus, there's a part of us many times that struggle with this idea that, that I believe in grace, I believe in forgiveness, I believe that God loves me, but there's still something that says I just think that maybe he likes you a little bit more than me, or that he loves you more than me, that if push came to shove and there were only two, one spot left and there were two of us on our way to heaven, that one of us was going to get chosen because maybe you did more things, right? I'm too far gone or there's too much that, you know, we believe this lie all the time. And I want to show you that Scripture combats this. Luke chapter 23, verse 24, this is Jesus on the cross, our Savior giving his life. In agony, nails through his wrists and his, and his feet. I can't imagine. The only thing I'm thinking about when I'm being tortured is not about the people who put me there. And yet Jesus, our Savior, says, Father, forgive them, for they have no idea what they're doing. How could anyone think that they're too far gone to be saved by the one who, who's declared, I love you. John 3.16, right? It says that for God so loved the world, implying in everything in it, that he gave his son so that no one would perish. No one would die. No one. It wasn't like so a few or like just a couple or the good ones. So that no one should have to perish, but everyone could have everlasting life. Like, 
You are no, there's no way that you are too far gone. In fact, it's such an important topic that the Apostle Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 8. Verse 35, he says, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or fear or doubt, I'm adding things here, you know, or unbelief or frustration or anger or bills or or car problems or house issues or relationship problems or mistakes or failures or whatever it might be, can anything separate us from the love of of Christ. No, verse 37 says, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded, I love this, he is persuaded that neither death, death can't separate us from God, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing that will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Guys, the serpent has been telling lies from the beginning of time to keep us away from God. He will tell any lie to keep us separated from the one that the Bible teaches over and over again. will go to incredible and unlimited lengths to come after us. Last week, we told the story of the prodigal son. Do you know why that's my favorite story in the Bible? It's because it's a picture of our father running to the one who was lost before he even arrives. That's the God that we serve. That's the God who we're talking about today. The Bible Bible says in that passage of scripture, it says that the father was looking at his son coming down the road. And it says that while he was still far off, he saw him and ran to him and hugged him. That's the picture of the father, of the love of Jesus Christ. That there is nothing that you could do that is that far, that, that is so bad that you are that far away from God. Whether you're a follower of Christ and you have been for a long time or whether you're considering it for the first time, there is nothing that you have done that will keep you from the ability to run back to his arms. In fact, he is running after you. You're here today because he's chasing you. This message is for you today. Whether you fall into any of these categories of lies that I trust myself or I trust my mind or I trust in all these religions or I trust in my money or my things or my possessions or I feel that nothing I do is going to give me, uh, make it right enough for me to be able to have a relationship with my creator. That I will never be able to find my true purpose in life or find the answer to what I'm searching for. The answer is that Jesus has come to give you, to tell you that everything, all those lies are that, just that. They are deceiving lies. They are keeping you from him. Everything you want, everything that I want, that I'm searching for at the core of my being is found in knowing Jesus. I believe it. I have experienced it myself. But we have to take a step of faith, and this is the hardest part. This is the craziest part. We have to say, I believe that's a lie. I believe that God can be trusted. Remember what I said in the beginning, the biggest lie of all, and everything we struggle with, is is that we believe that, that God isn't who he said he was, that he can't be trusted, whereas in fact, I believe that God is good that we can trust God, that we can trust that he loves us and knows what's best, that we can trust that God is in control of our lives and in what's going on in the world. We can trust that because of all of those things that we see, that we can follow his ways. And then when we do, we'll benefit from it. And the greatest lie of the enemy, of Satan, the devil, the deceiver, the adversary, the thief, whatever you want to call him, the greatest lie 
is that if we follow him, that you're going to miss out on life. That you won't be able to enjoy yourself. That it's just a bunch of rules. That God's trying to keep you under his thumb. But the truth is, and I've experienced this in my own life, that when I follow the teachings of Jesus, who is the representative of God in our story, I find freedom. I find freedom from fear and doubt. I find that the things begin to fall into place. I find that Jesus' words are true. And when I call out the lies that the, that the enemy has spoken into my life and is constantly trying to remind me of, I actually find that I'm close to God. And I begin to be like Adam in the scriptures. I begin to sense him walking in my house. I don't mean literally. What I mean is I begin to sense his presence because the Bible says that when Jesus resurrected from the grave, when he ascended to heaven, then he sent the Holy Spirit. And the Bible tells us that when we believe in Jesus Christ, when we say, yes, I believe that you are who you said you were, that the Bible says that that moment that the Holy Spirit is sent and comes to live within you. The representative of the Spirit of Jesus Christ is no longer in one man. It's in the entire body of Christ. That's why the Bible is, why the church is called the body of Christ. Because he is living inside of us literally. His presence is with us. And the problem is, is that my sinful nature, the things that cause me to believe that God is evil, that he's not nice, that maybe he doesn't even exist, all of those struggles, they blind me. They deafen my ears of my soul to understand that he is here. But as I begin to denounce those lies in my life and in your life, as you do this, as you begin to denounce them and speak out, this is what is true. I believe that the things that the Bible says are true, I now become more sensitive to the Spirit of God living in me. I begin to sense Him working in my situations. I begin to receive peace. You see how this works? You have to turn off the lies to be able to walk in the truth. You can't have both at the same time. That's called interference. Have you ever tried two signals going at once? It's static, right? You have to be able to put the effort into denouncing lie and choosing truth. And that's what I believe the message of the serpent is. It's all about lies. And the entire story of the Bible is really all about exposing the lies of the enemy and ultimately showing us the truth of who God is through Jesus Christ. And as we can begin to start by just saying, you know what? I'm going to choose to believe that what he said is true and try it and start walking in that direction. He promises to meet us there like the father who runs to us. He runs to us and begins to teach us. And when we fall and when we think about maybe I'll turn back, I don't know, I want to take a side trip. He's waiting there. He's calling to us. It's never too late. The story of the serpent is a story of lies. Jesus though, has defeated the serpent and has exposed his lies so that we can see God for who he really is. And Colossians 2.15 says this, And having dismissed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The Bible is extremely clear that Jesus is the one who remains at the end of the fight. All the things that we struggle with, all of our fears, we can, we can live in them and they are going to be there and they're always going to be tempting us, but we must declare the truth of Jesus' victory over death and over the grave. I love that art piece, oh death, where is your sting? The skull had teeth removed, has no more bite because Jesus overcame it. We have to begin walking in that truth and not be held back 
by our lives anymore. Would you stand with me? Close your eyes. I'm going to pray. Father, thank you for the lessons that we see throughout Scripture. So, so many times we're held back by our minds, by thinking of analyzing so many things, and that's good. You've given us brains. You've given us, you've given us minds to think about things and to wrestle with things and to work through things, and I, I'm so grateful for that. You don't want us to be blind followers. You want us to wrestle with and, and discover things. But at the end of the day, we also need to come to a place of where we just choose that we're going to believe it or not. And so today, I believe that your word has spoken, that we have seen the lies of, of Satan that, that are seeking ultimately all around the world to destroy us, to take every person away from you, to blind them and to call them to false gods, to false places, even false securities, even so many of us as Christians holding on to the lies of, of security and money and our things, thinking that somehow those things will save us. Even if we would never utter those words, somewhere deep in our being, in our hearts, we, we still hold on to those things as our security and salvation. And so today, I want to pray for, for every one of us today, that we would begin to trust in God. That, and I'm not talking about like this moment. For some of us, it is the moment of, I want to follow Jesus for the first time. I'm going to trust him. I'm talking about a deeper level of trust. The idea that, that God can be trusted. And so God, I pray right now that you would open our hearts. You would soften our hearts. You would reveal who you are. That you would show us. If any person is struggling in the room today with the idea that maybe you're not who I thought you were. Maybe you aren't good Maybe you don't have my best in mind that you would help us to see that that is a lie, that is not true, and that instead you are faithful, that you are trustworthy, that you are good, that you do have things under control, that even if I can't see them, that I believe that you are a good God who takes my dreams and takes my, my hopes and all the things that I want, and you don't just throw them away haphazardly. You hold them in your hand and you hold them with care. We trust you. I pray for trust, God. God, I pray right now that you would help us to reject trust in ourselves. That each one of us, wherever we are in our walk with you, that we would begin to see those lies exposed in our lives, the areas that we've trusted in ourselves, trusted in our intellect, trusted in our emotions, trusted in, uh, in our finances or in our possessions, trusted in the relationships that we have, anything that holds us to keep us from thinking that everything is okay when we really need you. I reject that in my life. I reject that notion, and I again put my trust in you. And finally, I pray, God, that you would help us to receive your grace. Some of us in the room, we struggle specifically with this idea of receiving your love, your forgiveness, and your grace. We feel like Adam and Eve. We feel like we've failed, either intentionally or unintentionally. We deal with the guilt and the shame of our lives, of our mistakes, of our, the things that we do on a daily basis. We look at our own current circumstances and feel like we are so far from you and so much of it is our own doing. And we feel like there's, that there's just a space in our life that is too far gone. It's too gross. It's too ugly. That I, I, you would forgive me for most of this, but this 1% right here. I just can't give it to you right now. 
I just declare over you that God's word says that is a lie. That there is nothing that he will not forgive. There is nothing that he, that he can't take from you and hold you and hug you and say, it's okay, just give it to me. And so right now, receive his grace. In Jesus' name, we receive your forgiveness. We receive your grace. We declare that you are God. We declare that you are good, that you love us, and that Jesus Christ has come to give us life and to reconnect us so that we can begin to know what it's like to walk in the garden again. That's what we want, God. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. If you call Encounter Church home or if you'd like to partner with us to support the work that God is doing here, you can take advantage of our online giving option. Just go to EncounterGiving.com. Also, stay up to date with us throughout the week by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at EncounterPGH. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.